Today we continue our sermon series on the life of David. And as we've been going through the life of David, we've been watching David uh, do this thing called Kaddish Hashem, honoring God's name, making God's name famous in all that he does, and seeing a lot of victory in that, seeing a lot of victory in uh, defeating Goliath, which is a story we all know. Um, even if you're not used to going to church or used to the Bible, you know David and Goliath. And then in addition to that, uh, we see David um, slowly becoming anointed as king. And as he's slowly being anointed as king, Saul pursuing him and trying to kill him. And him actually uh, running towards God in the midst of that, worshiping God, living in the desert, experiencing desert, and really realizing that worship is what sustains David in the midst of the desert. And we talked last week about this idea of brotherhood and sisterhood, um, and that, that David had someone named Jonathan to navigate the desert, and actually really looking at what real relationship actually looks like. Real brotherhood, real sisterhood. Today, David's story takes a big turn. I want to ask you, have any of you... Um, ever done something or had something done to you where you could not stop thinking about it? And I'm not talking about in a, in a good way. There's that, right? I'm talking about like hard things, bad things. Like a decision that you've made that is like a forever decision. A decision that you've made that like when you, when you drive down a certain street or certain road, like that decision comes back every single time. A house that you drive by, a house that you're in, maybe the smell of something, maybe a relationship, a picture that pops up on your Facebook memories, and it takes you back to that decision, that moment, that day, where your life took a major trajectory change. How do we navigate these things? Maybe, maybe you haven't made that decision that is a forever decision, but maybe you're thinking about that forever decision right now. Maybe you're thinking about doing something that you know will change the trajectory of your life in a significant way. How do you navigate that? How do you come back from that? How does the Lord want us to navigate these things in the midst of trauma, in the midst of tragedy? What are we supposed to do? 2 Samuel chapter 11 is a story what we know of as David and Bathsheba. David chooses not to go to war in the springtime. He chooses to stay home. And as he's home, while his military is out fighting, he gets up from a nap, gets on top of his palace, and is overseeing the city. And as he's overseeing the city, he sees a woman who is bathing. And she's beautiful. And he sees her, and he decides, I need to have her. And so he summons his servants. He goes and gets Bathsheba and brings Bathsheba to his room where he sleeps with her. He has her sent back home. Weeks go by. She realizes she's pregnant. David then begins to think, 
how do I deal with this situation, this decision, this problem? And what he decides is he reaches out to his military commander, Joab, and he says, grab Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and bring him to me. So he brings him off the battlefield, brings him home, talks to him, and, and, and encourages him and says, you deserve rest. You deserve your family. You deserve your wife. Go home. Go home to be with your wife. Right. Trying to cover up this forever decision. And as he's doing that, Uriah is a man of integrity, a man of honor in this moment. And he knows that he has his military men, his, his people that, that are fighting the battle, that they're not home. So how could he go home? So he does not stay or sleep at home. Instead, he, he goes and sleeps outside like his men are sleeping outside in the fields. And David finds word of this and is obviously frustrated, discouraged. So he calls Uriah back the next day. Why didn't you go home? Here's this conversation and says, well, why don't we have a dinner? Let's have some wine, lots of wine. Maybe he'll trip up. Maybe then he'll be weak. Maybe then he'll go home. But Uriah doesn't. Again, full of wine, still goes out, doesn't go home. Finally, David says, all right, Joab, why don't you take Uriah? I want you to put him back out into the fight, into the war, and I want you to put him on the front lines. And when the timing is right, I want you to draw back and make sure that Uriah killed so he does it and a servant comes back to tell David of what's gone on and he says to David many of your servants were killed and David gets upset because he doesn't hear what he wants to hear he wants to hear that Uriah is dead he wants to hear this problem has been taken care of and finally the servant says Uriah was also killed as well in battle and David says oh this is tragic but in war, you lose men. It's part of the process. Go and send double the men, destroy the city. And so they destroy the city. And David at this moment waits for the mourning of Bathsheba. She hears that her husband has been killed, waits for her to mourn, and then brings her home and makes her one of his wives. And as I hear this story, read this story. Here's the question that I ask myself, and maybe you're asking this morning. How in the world does David go from a man after God's own heart, a man who honored and gave God's name to be famous in how he lived, how does he go from that to 2 Samuel chapter 11, Bathsheba? Anybody else ask that question? I do. How in the world does that happen? The way that it happens is we see it over and over in the text. That even though we are called to be a people that Kaddish Hashem, honor God's name and make his name famous, and that how we live is a reflection of that, we also have an enemy who wants the opposite to take place. We have an enemy that is relentless in whispering and talking to us to not make God's name famous, but to make our own name famous, 
He whispers for us to be selfish. He whispers for us to really believe that there are other things other than God that actually fulfills our longings, our desires, the things that we think will fulfill us. I mean, it's Genesis chapter 3, isn't it? Genesis chapter 3, you've heard the story. Verse 4, the enemy says, You won't die, Eve, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman, what's that next word? The woman was what? Convinced. Convinced. And then some moment, David's on the palace, convinced. This is what I'm going to do. And this is good. This is, this is what I want. This is what's right. It's what's going to fulfill me. It's what's going to keep me from being lonely. Whatever it was, he was convinced. And she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious and she wanted the, wi the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it and then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. This is what scripture talks about, the lust of the heart, the longing of the heart, the flesh that all of us wrestle with. That every single one of us wrestle with what the Bible calls the spirit versus the flesh. And every single one of us, as we look at the story of David, even though we might be like, well, I've never committed adultery, the reality is every single one of us has been succumbed to sin. We're all like David. The Bible does not elevate adultery above gossip. The Bible doesn't elevate adultery above lying. The Bible doesn't elevate sin above other sin. We're all sinners guilty and we all choose to listen to the voice of the enemy over the voice of the Lord about who we are, what we're supposed to be about, and what actually fulfills us and what actually brings us life. And in this moment, David really is showing a picture of, of us. That when we choose to not listen to God's voice and instead the enemy's voice, we are driven by flesh, we are driven by shame, I love this quote from John Lynch. He says this, Shame is that thing that drives my compulsive behavior in whatever manner. I'm never going to be enough. I'm never going to measure up. So I permission and entitlement do wrong. Justification, right? This is, this is David wrestling with the flesh. What happens next? Chapter 12. Chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. Everybody say Nathan this morning. Nathan. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but the one little lamb he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby uh, daughter, one day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs of the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you a master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, 
I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all of Israel. David gets caught. David gets caught. And in the story, as we listen to the story and David gets caught, there's a piece of me that longs for David, this amazing king, this amazing servant, as he's been growing up and going through the process of following the Lord, there's a piece of me that as he goes and enters in this relationship with Bathsheba, there's this longing for me to go, man, will he just come clean? Will he just come clean? But he gets caught. And as much as we, we go, ah, he gets caught. It makes it even worse. Yes and no. Paul Young, who is an author, talks about his affair and what it was like for him in the midst of his affair. He said, the better storyline is one day I'll finally figure out how messed up I was, so I went and got help. That's what I wish my storyline was. He says, no. Some of us are too broken to think that far outside of ourselves. So a lot of us have to get caught. And he says this, that is a great and terrifying grace. Everything about that? A great and terrifying grace. What I see in the story of 2 Samuel chapter 12 is that God sends people in our lives to bring truth when we're either headed for destruction or we're already in destruction. God sends Nathan to confront David as he's in the midst of destruction and headed for destruction. He sends Nathan to confront him. And I want you to look at how David responds. Verse 13. It said that David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Yes, he sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba, her family, his family, the nation of Israel. But ultimately, this has always been about Kadesh Hashem. And it is for us. When we sin, it's not just against others. It's against the Almighty God. I've sinned against the Lord. Even though David was not perfect, we talked about this, that he was a man after God's own heart because he cared about God's reputation above his own, but he was also a man after God's own heart because when he was confronted, he was quick to repent and ask for forgiveness when repented, when confronted. And we see David living this out. Psalm chapter 51 is the psalm where David actually is crying out to God his repentance, his confession of his sin. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I just want to share a couple verses with you. He says this, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David humbly Accepts, I am I'm full of sin and, and I need to be cleansed. He understands that he is not God, that God is God, and he, he humbly repents and confesses. Verse uh, 10, 
Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. And anybody who grew up in youth group in the early 90s knows this song, right? You guys are like, oh man, we're going back right now. Let's sing it, right? It's David. David. Confronting his sin. Confessing. Repenting. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. How did David get to a point from David and Goliath to Bathsheba? Here's the thing. Affairs don't happen overnight. Sin doesn't happen overnight. It's not just like, oh, all of a sudden I'm going to do this, this tragic, painful, sinful how does it happen? Here's how it happens. So every morning, I wake up and I uh, drink two cups of coffee. Why? Because coffee's amazing. And I also drink water. Because coffee, if I don't drink it with water, coffee you don't know, dehydrates you, pushes all the H2O out of your body. And water is what I drink to make sure I don't get a headache for the rest of the day for being dehydrated. And drink water. This is a good old Starbucks cup. Every morning, drive through Starbucks. Well, I should say not every morning. Three out of my seven days, I drive through Starbucks drive through. And I've got Starbucks at home that I drink at home. And when I pull up, they go, hey, Justin. I go, hey, same old, same old, same old, same old. Grande drip, grande ice water. Now, if I were to take this cup of water and I were to take this lid off and I were to start shaking it, what's going to happen to the water? It's going to go everywhere, right? And Jeff and Joel and everybody's going to be really mad at me because there's a lot of expensive technology up here. So I'm not going to shake it. And if we were to ask the question, well, why did the water go everywhere? The surface answer is because you shook the cup. But below the surface answer is the reason why water went everywhere is because there's water in the cup. Because if it was empty and I shook it, nothing would happen, right? But what's in the cup is what spills out. For David, how many weeks? How many months? How many years did he start filling his mind and his heart with the lies of the enemy where eventually it all spilled out? Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is a tragic grace. A tragic grace where David comes to the confrontation of what he's been filling his mind and his heart with and him saying, I'm going to change what I'm filling my head and my heart with. It's a moment where he goes, God, you've got to clean me. And you've got to save me. And you've got to refill me 
with your spirit because what's been filled inside of me has not been of you. It doesn't happen overnight. It's a slow, gradual shift, a slow, gradual listening of the enemy as he whispers over and over again, just do this. It will fulfill the longing and hole in your heart. This is what we do when we choose to start listening to the enemy. But I want you to notice, I said it earlier, who did the Lord send? He sent who? What was his name? Nathan. Verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan. And what we have to understand is that Nathan is just not Nathan, but Nathan, I believe, is a physical representation of God pursuing David in the midst of his sin. God is pursuing David even as he's steeped in sin. He's sending someone, a partner, to confront David in the midst of what David's going through. He's sending him because God is still pursuing David in the midst of his sin. And not only is he pursuing David, here's the reality. He's pursuing you right now in the midst of your sin, in the midst of your tragic lie that you may be believing this morning. And just like he's pursuing you and he's pursuing David, he's actually been pursuing all of us since the very beginning. We talked about the story in Genesis. The, the, the enemy doesn't quit lying. Adam and Eve believed the enemy. There's consequences to their sin. But I want you to notice that God is pursuing them even in the midst of it. Look at verse 8. When the cool evening breezes were blowing after they had ate of the tree of the fruit of good and evil, man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to them, where are you? Did God know where they're at? Yes, he's God. Did he know what they do? Absolutely. Why are you full of shame? Who told you that you sinned? God knows. But he's pursuing a relationship with Adam and Eve in the midst of consequences still coming. And it said that they were full of shame. And what did they cover themselves? Do you remember? Leaves. And God says, I'll do one better. To show you how much I love you and I'm still pursuing you in the midst of your sin. Notice what it says in verse 21. The Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife to color, cover themselves. And the rabbis taught that animal skins weren't just animal skins. They're skins from a lamb. Like the lamb of God who covers our sins. God is still pursuing David in the midst of his sin, wanting to partner with David, wanting David to, to confess and to repent. And Jesus is still pursuing you in the midst of the sin that you're in. Whether you are aware of the sin that you are aware of in your heart or even the sin that you're not aware of, Jesus is still pursuing you in the midst of your sin. And Nathan is the physical representation of a God who's pursuing him. Now, if you've been a part of real life for any amount of time, you know this part of my story, at least the first part of it. I don't think you know the last part of it. You guys know, like, I grew up child of the 90s. My mom and dad were very naive to technology. 
First summer, I'm home by myself. My mom and dad buy a computer because that's what everybody's doing. And they get AOL, dial-up, you know, the whole thing. Next thing you know, sixth grade in 1996 summer, I stumble upon uh, images and video that no teenager should be watching, right? And not only am I watching that, but slowly over time, I become addicted to pornography. And I carry this by myself through middle school, through high school, wrestling with guilt, wrestling with shame, even starting to go back to youth group my freshman year, not telling anybody about a youth group. I mean, we can't talk about that. And it wasn't until I was 20 years old in Boise Bible College where I began to confront the sin in my life, meeting with a bunch of other Bible College students down at a breakfast spot on Glenwood. I think it was Granny's, I think it was, it was called. We get up there at Friday morning at 6 a.m. We were crazy Bible college students. 6 a.m., eating breakfast and talking about our stuff. Every single week, it was the expectation. We're going to talk about how we did, how we're doing, what's really going on, living real life with one another, real brotherhood, real sisterhood. And here's the thing. God began to cripple that sin, those lies in my heart. But it wasn't until one night I began to really realize how much God loved me. It wasn't until this night that the addiction really began to wear off its lure in my heart and in my mind. I remember one Friday morning, the leader of our group just said, listen, guys, like, God wants to free you from this. And I don't want to wait to hear about what happened until Friday morning. I don't care what time of night it is, what time of morning it is, what time it is in the afternoon. The next time the enemy comes and whispers and you feel tempted, when temptation comes your way, will you reach out to me and I will be there for you. And I will come and I'll pray with you. And honestly, I was like, whatever, dude. One week, all the students are pretty much gone back to Oregon, Washington. I'm from Idaho. I just stayed in my dorm. I'm alone. Temptation comes my way. I had to make a choice. Would I trust this guy? Or would I just keep doing what I've always done? I called him. Almost at midnight. He's in bed. I tell him what's going on. He says, I'm on my way. He comes to my dorm room. He prays with me for about an hour. And it was in that moment, that moment, when I realized this is what God is like. He comes and pursues me even in the midst of me walking away. He's still pursuing me. And he's here with me in this moment and in this time. And as he went home, and I went to bed that night, from that moment on, when temptation came my way, I was reminded, I don't need to call my D group leader. I need to call upon Jesus, because he's here with me, in this moment, and in this place. And I need to confess, I need to repent, if I've done something wrong, and if, I'm, if I haven't, I need to come back underneath his lordship and his love and say, Jesus, I need you right now. 
The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I need you. A physical representation of who Jesus is. You see, God pursues us to forgive and to restore, but it requires us to confess our sins, to receive restoration, to receive forgiveness, to receive love, to receive the joy that he offers to us. And here's the thing. When I begin to understand how much Jesus loves me in the midst of the sin that I commit, I can't help but be convicted. I can't help but be overwhelmed. I can't help but but be in awe of the goodness of who God is. And anybody who says, oh, well, he'll just forgive you, Paul says you're just taking advantage of the cross when you do that. We're called to be a people that create safe places for us to go to war with the enemy, to have each other's back, to be a people where we can say, I'm struggling, I need help, I've blown it this week. And we don't injure and wound our wounded, but we love and encourage and speak the truth and love to one another. To be a Nathan or a David. So that we would have the opportunity to cry out to God and say, I I need you, Lord, and I have to confess this. I'm asking you to change me. I'm asking you to refill my cup, my heart, and my brain with the truth of who you are. God could have annihilated David, and he didn't. He kept pursuing him. What about you? What about you? Today, would you choose to confront the sin in your life, no matter how small or significant the world categorizes it, right? Oh, that's not that big a deal. No, God says it's a big deal. Would you be willing to confront it? Would you be willing to walk humbly, confess it, to ask for forgiveness, to walk in the freedom that Jesus has given you by his death, burial, and resurrection? Would you be willing to walk in that freedom? Would you be willing to actually trust what the word says about your sin? James 5.16 says this, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be, what's it say up there? So that you may be, and that's what I experienced in my dorm room. Confessing, praying, being healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What do you want me to do, Pastor? Here's what I want you to do. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, I said it last week, you've got to get connected in a brotherhood and a sisterhood, a real relationship. And would you be willing to trust Jesus at his word that confessing your sin leads to healing? Would you be willing to be honest with brothers and sisters about the things that are going on in your heart and to confess it openly? Would you be willing to be the opposite of culture? We talked about it in between services. The opposite of culture with social media, is it's all the highlights, right? It's all the amazing things. It's all the things that we look at and we go, hey, look at how my life is, look at how my kids are, look at how my marriage is, look at what I'm doing in Maui and Hawaii and all these other places. But in all reality, for, for all of us, we've got other stuff that's going on, right? All we see is the highlight reel, but we don't really see what's going on in the background. Why? Because we don't show that to the world. Jesus says, come to me with that. Come to me. Come to your brothers and your sisters and be healed of the things that, that are destroying your life. Would you be willing to confess it? Be healed by it. Be prayed over it. And experience 
real life as Jesus intended for it, for all of us. We've all got our stuff. We say things like, it's okay to not be okay at real life. Is it? Do you really believe that? What would it look like if we started confessing our sin to one another? What would it look like in our marriages, you guys? We've been told by society just to say, I'm sorry. Sorry. And the response is, after someone says, I'm sorry, we say, it's what? It's, it's not okay. Right? When we've been hurt, we've been sinned against, when we've sinned against them, it's not okay. What if we started saying, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? I was prideful. I was arrogant. I was selfish. I was wrong. Would you forgive me? What would happen if we started talking like that in our marriages? What would happen if we started talking like that with our kids when we blow it as a parent? When we discipline out of anger? If we looked at our kids and said, I'm sorry, will you please forgive me? I failed you. I failed God. What would happen if we started cutting the enemy off at the pass when the enemy whispers and tells you, it's not that big a deal. You're justified. You need to do what's right for you. And we said, no. My God says it's not okay. And then when we do blow it, that we go to our brothers and our sisters and say, I blew it this week and I need your help. I need your prayers. And we circled around one another and we had each other's back in the midst of the war that we face every single week, not just on Sundays, every single day, every single week. What would happen if we went to our neighbors, that neighbor that is just so annoying, that has that annoying dog that won't shut up, and you talk bad about them, and you talk bad about, now your kids are talking bad about them, you talk bad about them about your neighbors, and everybody just hates that one neighbor. Does anybody have that neighbor? I guess I'm the only one, right? <laughs> and you went to them and said, you know what, I've talked bad about you for months, years. That's wrong. Would you please forgive me? What would happen? Maybe a miracle would happen. What would happen in our church if we realized that this place and our groups were safe places to deal with the real sin in our life? How would our church be different? How would our community be different? What if we trusted Jesus with everything? Including our sin. First John 1 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us, forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let me tell you, I don't care what you've done. I don't know what you've believed. There is nothing. Nothing that can separate you from the love of Jesus. Nothing. And he's inviting you to real life and to real, real freedom.
by acknowledging that he is God, that we are not. So that maybe, maybe you would experience real healing, real life, if we're willing to confess to one another. I want to invite you to bow your heads as we go and prepare for a meal with Jesus. And I'd like you just to pray about two things. First thing is this, is what is that thing that you are thinking about doing that you know Jesus tells you not to do? Or maybe you've already done it. Maybe it's that forever decision. And Jesus is asking you to turn it over to him. Would you pray about that? Would you pray about that conversation with Jesus? About what your fears, your anxieties, what your longings are? And the second thing I'd like you to pray about is, who is the person you need to go talk to about it? Not just hold it in, not just keep it a secret, but to bring it out into the light. Who's that person? Who's that safe person that you know will talk to you and they will love you, challenge you because they love you and walk beside you in the midst of the battle? Who's your Nathan? Spend some time with the Lord this morning.